0: Hello again, my friends. Welcome to MTDC and North America. This is the Gun Show. I am at Harbeck today, and I have a really great honor to spend time with my friend Bob. Now, I usually make some introductions based on having some sort of insight about the product or the technology or the information that I'm about to share with you guys. But Bob is one of those types of people that has the the foresight and the the mindset to really understand processes that I would like to learn more about. So I'm on your team today where we're all going to get to learn. So I'm excited about this. So Bob, Harbeck is really unique in itself in many aspects. And we have lots of machines and we've talked about growth and what you guys have grown into but there's something that we haven't talked about today which we can kind of see in the background here with windmills and natural energies could you please expand explain and expand on that a little bit so that our, our global audience can learn a little bit about how you guys are creating all of this energy
1: okay well it starts out that we are uh, with logic we are a huge user of energy. Industry is uh, one of the most significant consumers of energy. And so if you want to do something about that or use it to take an opportunity to help yourself, there's great potential in it. So if you're using a lot of something and you can figure out a way to use less, it's a positive thing. So at that simple level, the, all of the things that you basically quickly touched on and those you didn't, are all economically driven. There is an ROI or uh, economic model that justifies each one of them. And they have been implemented and developed over the last 20 plus years now. So in the late 90s, we started by having problems with our local utility. And we were... um, and this is the time too when the cnc machines were getting pretty sophisticated doing some very amazing complex cavity work and things like that high precision and and we had a grid that would for the general public be no problem but for us it was a problem because it was poor quality of grid power and so brownouts low voltage phase imbalance, all these kinds of things were becoming more and more and more prevalent and then result was more and more damaged equipment, computers and CNC machines. So we tried to work with the utility to improve that and they basically don't deal with one customer and so after a lot of frustration and lip service they gave us a solution that would allow us to pay $100,000 for a transformer that they would own and they wouldn't guarantee would fix our problem. So my situation was I, I have a, a $100,000 outlay that nobody's guaranteeing will do anything or do I go find some better way to use that $100,000? And so that was the core, the impetus to m- make it all happen. Parallel to that, I had always been interested in renewable energy before they had the word, before I even, people knew about it, in that when I was a kid, I was always infatuated with the magic of it. So the pull of a kite string, and the bigger I made the kite, the harder it pulled, and that invisible pull, the ability to do wood burning with a magnifying glass, nothing else. And so I always had this sense of magic about that invisible thing. And so in my younger life, I implemented wherever I could, those at that time brand new technologies like wind turbines and solar panels and that at my home. And I am lucky enough to have a farm out in Webster. and And so I, put up my first wind turbine in 1980, which was a newsworthy event because nobody had ever heard of that in 1980 at home. And and I did a lot of work with geothermal and any all kinds of uh, alternatives that I could find. And so I had that experience and sort of like a passion behind me when I had this problem with the grid. So I decided to see if I could try to solve some of those problems that I needed a more intelligent way to spend that money on. And that began it. And at that time, so now you're in the late 90s, there uh, was not a lot happening in the United States, still isn't really, but there was a lot starting to happen in Europe. So I was able to find examples and learn from uh, um, different situations that were happening happening there and learned about things like combined heat and power. And so as I tr- sought to find the solution to the power quality issue, I became exposed to another whole level of opportunity, which was the v- the value of total energy. So that the potential for combining energy efficiency and energy uh, renewability uh, became A combination that we put together. And so the first version, the first project that I tried to bank was to do a micro turbine combined heat and power plant along with a renewable energy wind turbine. We set out to do it, got financing, but at that time micro turbines were at the very infancy. And so there was a lot of smoke and mirrors and false statements and that. So when we got our approval to go ahead, we ordered the first group of microturbines from a company and they refused our order. Then we went to the second group of uh, microturbine potentials and they refused our order. And we went to the third one, finally, and they could honor our order, but they were telling true pricing. The other two were not. So I had a dilemma, I had to go to the bank, explain the situation. I was lucky enough to get NYSERDA, which is New York State Energy Research and Development Authority, to help me and loan me money, but mostly they loaned me their name because when I could go to the bank and say NYSERDA is helping me, in New York State that's sort of like an unofficial seal of approval. Mm -hmm. And so the bank recast the loan said, but you can't have the wind turbine until we've Make sure about this. So, we started out with um, microturbine combining power plant. We ran 18 months, 100% off of our microturbines. No, we stayed connected to the grid, but never took any power from it because we didn't want to lose our hookup. And and as long as it's within a couple of years, we uh, make the decision to buy the more efficient, but maybe a little bit more expensive machine. And that way of thinking we try to do in all of our equipment. And again, we were taught that by NYSERDA who until the last few years, had a program going where they challenged companies to give them a solution like that, that if I bought this compressor, I have to pay a premium but the energy that I'm saving for a, a, a few years, and you would document it. They would come in and measure before you replaced the piece of equipment or purchased equipment where you were. Then you'd bring in the equipment and they'd measure you again. And then they would verify that, yep, you are saving that much energy. And they would reimburse you the, whatever their percentage of, of benefit they were giving you. So we learned a lot. And it became our modality for equipment purchases. So we have the energy generating potentials, the energy efficiency potentials. In that regard now, because of our changeover from just thinking of them initially as electric generators to fix our quality, our quality problems, they have now become thermal generators and the electricity is the byproduct. And so if we keep that way of thinking, as we've learned through the different phases of it, regardless of the cost of the fuel for them it will always be our most cost-effective way of operation. And the reason why is because of the, of the consumption, the totalness of consumption. We don't have to worry about if the price goes up and we're using it only for thermal, then we only use what we need and we get the electric another way. And so that whole combination of ultimate efficiency and ultimate renewable, the opportunity
0: of renewable, <laughs> is how we can- I don't think up you're up full of baloney, I'm curious why. Bob, that I'm an absolute. Oh, I gotta be honest. I'm an Don't absolute, know uh, of what I'm learning from okay. you um, and the information and, and you as a person. A couple of follow-up questions, just based on listening to you talk. Uh, you mentioned that you tinkered around as a kid and you had your, you know, playing with the sun, and you, had and, you know, burning things, and the kite with the long string. Why so, my, one of, of my two questions is, lakes and rivers it feels to me or like it's, it's more than just a curiosity. Like you have a real mm-hmm. passion for they of what they call maybe doing your part prestige. to make mm-hmm. your better place and not destroy some you know, of our older our resources. And the question after that is, uh, how doable is, is this for other companies, companies to accomplish like as well? It's incredibly I like that. doable.
1: There is nothing that was invented here. Everything is off the shelf. But... I... You touched on something that I wouldn't mention unless you did, which was there is another reason for me for all of this. And, but in the very beginning, I made a very bad mistake. And I led with that reason. And I, for a number of months had terrible failures in trying to bank what I was thinking and the reason why I was inadvertently branding myself as a burned out hippie or a Birkenstocker because I was telling about my heart that was behind it, uh, about my grandchildren, about the future of the planet, about all those things and they would sit in the room and listen to me and I thought they were engaged but then within a day or two I'd get a rejection and just not able, no proof of concept, all these kinds of vague reasons why. And one of them finally was honest enough to say, I can't sell my committee the things that you're saying. And I realized I needed to stop that. So I went back underground for another few months, rethought the whole story, and decided to focus on economics so now my opinion based on my experience is that if I want to make an impact I have to prove it economically it doesn't matter what I think about the future or the environment or anything else if someone asks me I'm very glad to to go into great detail about why I think it's important and as an example Harbeck has been a carbon neutral company since 2012 we are so we're all one, one of the, the first like companies system. to become ISO 50,001 certified, we and so are platinum, and I believe and we're one of different only different eight to ten different companies different in the world who have that level, uh, the highest level of performance, and certainly the only small company, at least that our last and that checking. Is where we and so, it isn't just us that cares about it and I believe we are developing a marketing strategy that unfortunately we're in the wrong place and perhaps at the wrong time but that it's coming and by that I mean sustainability in the United States is a term that's very popular for the sake of discussion but not for the sake of implementation so if you look at the majority of for, every for, every comp, Fortune 500 company now is putting out their sustainability statement. That includes Exxon, Shell, the coal companies, everybody like that. They all have a sustainability statement then. So what exactly is sustainability, you know? if it, And it's just the same thing with green at the time of that term. And, uh, so, they're en- kind of empty buzzwords that everybody jumps on. They all want to have it there so that their stockholders and customers buying products off the shelves will see that they are conscientious. But it's in majority of it is in name and word and hopes and plans and ideas for the future. Do you want to know what Harbeck's sustainability report is? Yep. We are carbon neutral in 2012 water neutral in
0: 2015.
1: And that's it. We have done that. We will be zero waste to landfill by 2025. You sound like one. They're very simple, (laughs) provable. We get third party audited every year to put, we put ourselves up for that, though, and that's because we want to be able to prove to the customer who someday challenges because we also when we quote jobs at Harbeck, we quote time, material, like everybody else, and carbon. And so we show the customer who's making a purchasing decision, that's the price, and this is how much carbon I could take off of my carbon footprint if I buy the part from Harbeck. In the United States today, nobody really cares. I mean, I hate to say that they don't, but I can't get proof. I, go, I look at the companies the big companies who are making all the claims and try to get to them we don't need we have tried and failed so many different ways and the closest we've got is they'll tell us no you aren't in our supplier base the same mouth that just said our supplier base isn't performing the way we want them to it's like saying well then can't you put two and two together and say take us in front of your suppliers and say well now we're going to give work to Harbeck if you don't do it but it's not happening
0: well for what it's worth it matters to me yep Thanks. and i'm not a large company like the Exxons or whoever else you mentioned but it matters to me and i think it matters to a lot of other people as well so let me say thank you for that first of all And uh, the sustainability that you're talking about it sounds like a fun keyword but i think it to most people it just means financial stability um i was talking with uh, a couple of your teammates earlier, Chris and oh, one of them, and uh, not only how to he took me out to a pond that's actually empty right now. And it looks like you're implementing a new process there, which I'd like to talk about, but also he showed me some reinvention of some plastics and the same concept of how we're trying to bring some of the coral reefs back to life. Would you mind talking about both of those things? I did not. Things?
1: Sure. Our pond is a big part of how we were able to become water neutral. And there is no, in carbon neutral, there is a a term that everyone understands. Water neutral, we made it up. And why we did is because we learned from carbon neutral about taking responsibility for carbon, about doing metrics, about your impact and all of that. But I have a passion about water also. And we, in our area, we are so blessed to live on the largest supply of fresh water in the world and so therefore we completely ignore it. We just totally waste it, and it's so stinking cheap, nobody cares about it. But the rest of the world, there's major, major issues, and we have a sister company who is involved in that, so there's a special level of passion about it. But industry is also a huge user of water, and We, and as long as it's within a couple of years, we uh, make the decision to buy the more efficient but maybe a little bit more expensive machine. And that way of thinking we try to do in all of our equipment. And again, we were taught that by NYSERDA, who until the last few years had a program going where they challenged companies to give them a solution like that. That if I bought this compressor, I have to pay a premium, but the energy that I'm saving for a a few years and you would document it. They would come in and measure before you replaced the piece of equipment or purchased equipment, where you were. Then you'd bring in the equipment and they'd measure you again. And then they would verify that, yep, you are saving that much energy and they would reimburse you the, whatever their percentage of, of benefit they were giving you. So we learned a lot and it became our modality for equipment purchases. So we have the energy generating potentials, the energy efficiency potentials. In that regard now, because of our changeover from just thinking of them initially as electric generators to fix our quality, power quality problems, they have now become thermal generators and the electricity is the byproduct. And so if we keep that way of thinking as we learn through the different phases of it, regardless of the cost of the fuel for them, it will always be our most cost-effective way of operation. And the reason why is because of the, of the consumption, the totalness of consumption. We don't have to worry about if the price goes up and we're using it only for thermal, then we only use what we need and we get the electric another way. And so that whole combination of ultimate efficiency and ultimate renewable, the opportunity of renewable, is how we came up with a total solution.
0: Well, Bob, that, I'm in absolute awe. i got to be honest. I'm in absolute awe of what I'm learning from you um, and the information and, and you as a person. A couple of follow-up questions just based on listening to you talk. Uh, you mentioned that you tinkered around as a kid and you had your... You know, playing with the sun and being able to burn things and, you know, the kite with the long string. Um, so my one of my two questions is, it feels to me like it's more than just a curiosity. Like you have a real passion for m- maybe doing your part to make the earth a better place and not destroy, you know, some of our older resources. And the question after that is... Uh, how doable is this for other companies to accomplish as well? It's incredibly doable. There is
1: nothing that was invented here. Everything is off the shelf. But, I, you touched on something that I wouldn't mention unless you did, which was there is another reason for me for all of this. And But in the very beginning, I made a very bad mistake. And I led with that reason. And I, for a number of months, had terrible failures in trying to bank what I was thinking. And the reason why I was inadvertently branding myself as a burned-out hippie or a Birkenstocker because I was telling about my heart that was behind it, uh, about my grandchildren, about the future of the planet, about all those things. And they would sit in the room and listen to me, and I thought they were engaged, but then within a day or two I'd get a rejection. And just not able, no proof of concept, all these kinds of vague reasons why. And one of them finally was honest enough to say, I can't sell my committee the things that you're saying, and I realized I needed to stop that. So I went back underground for another few months, rethought the whole story, and decided to focus on economics. So now my opinion, based on my experience, is that if I want to make an impact, I have to prove it economically. It doesn't matter what I think about the future or the environment or anything else. If someone asks me, I'm very glad to, to go into great detail about why I think it's important. And as an example, Harbeck has been a carbon neutral company since 2012. We are one of the first companies to become ISO 50001 certified. We are platinum, and I believe we're one of only 8 to 10 companies in the world who have that level, of the highest level of performance and certainly the only small company at least that are last checking. And so it isn't just us that cares about it and I believe we are developing a marketing strategy that unfortunately we're in the wrong place and perhaps at the wrong time but that it's coming and by that I mean sustainability in the United States is a term that's very popular, for the sake of discussion, mm-hmm. but not for the sake of implementation. So, if you look at the majority of for every for every comp- Fortune 500 company now, is putting out their sustainability statement. That includes Exxon, Shell, the coal companies, everybody like that. They all have a sustainability <coughs> statement. Then, so, what exactly is sustainability? You know, if uh, and it's just the same thing with green at the time of that term. And so they're kind of empty buzzwords that everybody jumps on. They all want to have it there so that their stockholders and customers buying products off the shelves will see that they are conscientious. But it's in majority of it is in name and word and hopes and plans and ideas for the future. Do you want to know what Harbeck's sustainability report is? do we are carbon neutral in 2012 water neutral in 2015 impressive and that's it we have done that we will be zero waste to landfill by 2025 so we're they're very simple provable we get third party audited every year (laughs) to what we put ourselves up for that though and that's because We want to be able to prove to the customer who someday challenges. Because we also, when we quote jobs at Harbeck, we quote time, material like everybody else, and carbon. And so we show the customer who is making a purchasing decision, that's the price, and this is how much carbon I can take off of my carbon footprint if I buy the part from Harbeck. In the United States today, nobody I mean, I hate to say that they don't, but I can't get proof. I go, I look at the companies, the big companies who are making all the claims, and try to get to them. We don't. We have tried and failed so many different ways, and the closest we've got is they'll tell us we no, aren't in our supplier base. The same mouth that just said our supplier base isn't performing the way we want them to. It's like saying, well, then can't you put two and two together and say, <laughs> take us in front of your suppliers and say, well, now we're going to give work to Harbeck if you don't
0: do it. But it's not happening. Well, for what it's worth, it matters to me. Yep. And yes. I'm not a large company like the Exxon's or whoever else you mentioned, but it matters to me, and I think it matters to a lot of other people as well. So let me say thank you for that, first of all. And uh, the sustainability that you're talking about, it sounds like a fun keyword, but I think it, to most people, just means financial stability. Um, I was talking with uh, a couple of your teammates earlier, Chris and one of them, and uh, he took me out to a pond that's actually empty right now, and it looks like you're implementing a new process there, which I'd like to talk about. But also, he showed me some reinvention of some plastics and the same concept of how we're trying to bring some of the coral reefs back to life. Would you mind talking about both of of those things? Sure.
1: Our pond is a big part of how we were able to become water neutral. And there is no, in carbon neutral, there is a a term that everyone understands. Water neutral, we made it up. And why we did is because we learned from carbon neutral about taking responsibility for carbon, about doing metrics, about your impact and all of that but I have a passion about water also. And we, in our area, we are so blessed to live on the largest supply of fresh water in the world. And so therefore we completely ignore it. We just totally waste it. And it's so stinking cheap, nobody cares about it. But the rest of the world, there's major, major issues. And we have a sister company who is involved in that. so. There's a special level of passion about it, but industry is also a huge user of water. And we, as a, as a typical industry uh, company, used it the same, initially used it the same way as everybody else, but one day we were given an opportunity to do a conservation project and it included rainwater harvesting. And so we were able to divert all of our, uh, well, actually we were forced into it because our town did not have an adequate water supply to our company to run our fire suppression system. And it became our insurance company's law that you had to have it. So we had to come up with some way to get enough water to run the system. So that and the opportunity to Uh, do rainwater harvesting is began our pond. So we needed a source. My son is an excavator and does ponds and other things like that. So he estimated he could do 900,000 gallon based on the depth of the bedrock and the area that we made available to him. We commissioned him to dig the hole and we diverted all of our parking lot runoff and building roof runoff to that, which we were able to estimate from some environmental engineer friends of ours, was a 1.2 million gallon, again, plus or minus 10% with weather potential per year. So we have a 900,000 gallon hole and 1.2 million gallons of potential. It's a good balance. Mm -hmm. And so we were able to sustain a pond. And then once the pond is in place and we have our fire system in place and all that, dissatisfied an opportunity came about saving energy and so being this thermal enlightened that I was joking about before (laughs) we said we and we know we have this process loop that we're constantly running to cooling towers spraying perfectly good city water which I call energy water and the reason why is because energy water is not like pond water it is water that was Taken from a lake or a river, run through a treatment plant, pumped back out. So a lot of effort and energy went into this, making this water that we completely take for granted. And so that prime water or premium water is what we use to spray on aluminum plates in a, with hot water running through them in what's called a cooling tower. So when you go by plants in the summertime and see the big plumes of steam coming out, you know they have those same things, they're doing the same operation. But the water we're spraying on those is this energy water, the prime water. And so we began to think of how good ways that we could reduce that amount of water that we have to spray on those plates. And one way was to, and again I mentioned I had geothermal experience, so we thought about the pond as a geothermal potential. And so we had some heat exchangers that in our earliest version of our uh, combining power plant had failed, they were a low quality uh, disappointment. So we designed and developed and built our own uh, heat exchangers. And when we took the dysfunctional ones out, we were left with these five units of, uh, and if you looked at the pond, if you notice that sculptural thing that's sitting on the bank, that was the first one. And we sunk it to the deepest part of our pond, connected to our process loop. And so we took our hot, processed water to the pond. Con- we could control in and out by temperature. So we, at the beginning, only wanted to leave two degrees in the pond because I was raising fish there. I had thought that a nice thing about the pond would be for the employees to go fishing And so we were raising perch and carp and all these things to have a balanced pond. Since then, no one has ever fished in the pond. So (laughs) the fish have lost priority. And that thermal two degrees saved 900,000 gallons of water. So what we were doing was making the job that much less by the time it got to the cooling tower. So that much less water. That was an epiphany. And so we maintained that system, but always tried, how could we do more? And now if you look at the pond, that unit has been extracted a few weeks ago. The water is almost uh, drained enough that they could install two enormous uh, geothermal manifolds or, or units. And those will be sitting on the bottom of the pond. They're floating right now but as soon as they're in the final position, they'll be filled with water, which will cause them to sink and they will sit in the mud on the bottom of the pond. And now if that one device, if you see it sitting out there and you see the whole bottom of the pond coated with geothermal, imagine how much thermal we can put in or take out of the pond. Because it's, it's a thermal dump in the summertime and a thermal, opportunity in the wintertime because at the bottom of the pond even at the top freezes it's about 50 to 60 degrees in the mud and so if we wanted to use a heat pump rather than trying to get the energy out of zero or ten below zero temperature or 30 degrees even in the wintertime we have this constant supply of 50 to 60 degrees Wow and so on and on and on and on the saga goes and Every time we do this, and at the beginning, our employees thought this was just a weird hobby. (laughs) So finally, my controller one year came up with a brilliant idea of how to impress on the employees. And we have a profit sharing program here. And when we present the profit sharing at the end of the year, one of our slides is how much of it came from energy that we didn't use or Mm -hmm. that we used efficiently and so we keep track of again we it's all economic provable and all bottom line positive impact so we say which percentage of that profit came from the fact that we are getting 350,000 kilowatt hours a year from this wind turbine or 1.6 megawatts of energy for free from this turbine or the efficiency of our heating and our air conditioning from
0: the power, how much does that all add up to? Wow. That's... We need more people like you, I think, (laughs) in my opinion. So, uh, I'll revisit that second question because I I, I also love water. Um, I live in Florida now, um, West Palm Beach area, and we do a lot, as much as we can, my family and myself, with conservation. So, planting mangrove trees and, and cleanups all the time and that kind of thing. And speaking with Chris, he showed me this cool little plastic contraption that you have laid out all over that pond. It and it was, uh, I want to hear you talk more about it, but to my understanding, it's just kind of to give microorganisms and maybe other animals a place to create a home like a coral reef does. Is that it is kind similar. of the idea? And was just some more. Maybe a, a, I I don't know if better is a way or more passionate way or more care. It's a way to utilize plastic in another way, right? It is. And so what we're doing
1: there is called cattail remediation. When the parking lot, the roof runoff is no problem, but parking lot runoff has oil and salt and different contaminants in it. So if you're raising fish, you can't just take parking lot runoff into a pond with... That's a living habitat. And so the solution, traditional solution for that is called cattail remediation. So you, all of our drainage from the parking lots comes in one place where you see the intense location of those things. And so it has to pass through. In the normal way that an uh, environmental engineer would design it, they use dolomite. So you, or or bank run gravel. So cobbles or or small uh, pieces of that and to hold the roots of the uh, cattails, but also to let the water flow through unrestricted. And what that does is it creates a habitat for the microorganisms that eat the parking lot salt and oil. And so the stones If you look at a stone in that kind of situation, it will have a film over it. That film is living. It's creatures that are eating the salt and the oil. So what we did, dolomite takes energy to mine it, energy to transport it, energy to... So instead, we were at the time working with an environmental engineering company making a digester ball. So it was a ball that would If you put it into sewage treatment plants, you could increase the volume of the sewage treatment plant without adding bricks and mortar because by putting the balls in there and they had uh, many, much surface. The ball's task was to have as much surface area as it possibly could. So it was not really a ball. It was just a lot of flutes like uh, out therefore an increase of surface area so they literally build these six by six cages they fill them up with uh, uh, digester balls and put them into the mix of the sewage treatment plant and the increased amount of bugs is increased amount of flow that they can handle so from that experience we got thinking about well if we could make something like that we wouldn't have to use the dolomite. And we have always been striving to do zero waste to landfill, even before there was a term. So we were always conscientious about, we had bugged us that molders would always tell everybody, oh, we don't have any waste, we grind it up and use it again. That's bull. If you're very, very lucky, you might find a customer who lets you put 10% of regrind, in, and all the rest has to be virgin. So. We, a a plastics molder creates a lot of polymer waste and it all goes to the landfill most of the time. So that bugged us too and we wanted to, so we've always been very conscientious about how we do that. We uh, maintain all of our regrind materials very carefully. We keep everything completely separated. And even the, but there's one part that we can't because it's commingled and it is the purges and as a small company who does a lot of changeovers frequently we create a lot of purges because every time you put a new tool in you got to change the material and even if it's only a color change you have to get that old material out and fill in the new and get the mold tested ready to go so that creates a, a, a volume of material that is some combination of the last job and the new job and so that was always the hardest thing for us to figure out what to do with. And we finally did with a plastic lumber company out of Canada. And we could take this purge, these half to, uh, different color parts and all that kind of stuff, grind them up, and for a very long time, several years, we were sending truckloads of that to Canada, and they were mingling it with low-melt materials, to create plastic lumber for industrial purposes. So it wasn't very pretty, but it outlasted lumber in constructing forms and things like that 10 times. Mm-hmm. So it was 10, they would la- the boards and that that they nailed or screwed to would last 10 times lum- longer than lumber alternative wood. And that was going along greatly. And then we were, everything was going to the right places. And one day the Canadian company called us and said, can't take your material anymore I said why well our local molders found out what we were doing and they said take ours don't take it from Harbeck and so they did and we lost our source we we helped a local company for a couple of years who got a franchise to do that same thing but they had an unfortunate fire and put them out of business and so we were stuck with this purge material and from the things we learned about the media, growing organisms, the need for the cattail remediation, so we developed our own solution. But we couldn't do a ball. And the reason why the ball wouldn't work is, if you think about it, the in flush uh, flow of water during a storm has turbulence. And it would have rolled all the balls to the bottom of the pond. Mm-hmm. So we learned from similar, what you're talking about, coral reefs, and... And actually, for the idea came from mine traps. Okay. In the World War II, they would have the concrete mine, or not mine traps, uh, but the tank traps. And they would have the tank traps that these structures that they would line them up. And there was no way the tank could get through because it, it would, the harder they pushed, the more they <laughs> dug in. And that was the, the shape that we needed. We had the material that we needed, this mixture of who knows what, and so, so far we've been able to come up with two solutions, but not more than two yet. And what the problem with the material is because it's I don't know what plastic. And nobody today except our two exceptions wants I don't know what plastic. And so we have found very few, <laughs> a very bright idea, but very few applications. But the EcoStone is what we call that one. And that worked out quite well for us. And we've done... Probably we've we don't now we give them away we don't even make them anymore but during the day when it was there and we were telling people about it and trying to promote it we probably gave away to a half a dozen remediation projects we would just say if you bring a vehicle we'll give you as many Gaylords as you want and, and but then it, it just kind of faded away and but that's where the original thing the eco stones came from
0: creative uh bob i could probably talk to you all day or should i say listen to you all day about all this kind of stuff um but i'm going to go ahead and wrap up and just thank you for sharing this and and doing what you do and uh if you ever want to backpack iceland with me i uh i've been there many many times and i get inspiration i want to go to Greenland from there and uh yeah we greenland as well uh iceland any of the scandinavian countries we can We can backpack around. I'd love to have you join me, because right now I'll go lay in a a hot spring, and I'll enjoy it, but I won't know the details like you do. So (laughs) we can climb some volcanoes, we can watch some geysers, we can hang out in a hot spring. The invite is open, and, and thank you so much for sharing this story with MTD. My pleasure. Absolutely, great job.